1: Slate's audiobook club is brought to you by Audible.com with more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook at audiblepodcast.com/abc. Hello, and welcome to the Slate audiobook club for the month of February 2016. I'm Katie Waldman, words correspondent at Slate, and I'm joined in the DC studio today by Christina Cattarucci, a staff writer for Double X. Hey, Christina
0: hey katie thanks for having me
1: welcome to the audiobook club um also appearing on our show for the first time live from new york is the movie and culture critic mark harris hey mark
2: hey katie
1: hey we are thrilled to have you both um so today we'll be diving into a big orange tome of short stories by master storyteller and underrated genius lucia berlin this collection is titled a manual for cleaning women and it gathers together more than 40 of Berlin's quasi-autobiographical tales. This is not exactly a book that lends itself to spoiler warnings, but you should still know that we will not hold back in discussing plot twists where they appear. So, if you prefer your reading experience absolutely unsullied by commentary, you should pause this podcast, go read a manual for cleaning women, and then come back where we will be waiting with open arms. Or something. (laughs) Um, Okay, enough for me. Mark, you were spotted on Twitter enthusing about Lucia Berlin. Um, So I was just wondering, to start off, what drew you to her and what do you think sets her apart from the many, many gifted short story writers out there?
2: Well, what drew me to her was all of the immense critical attention that she got uh, during 2015. You know, hers was a name I had never heard before and suddenly I just read Review Uh, after review, not only saying that this was a great collection, but that she was really a writer's writer, which intrigued me. Um, And I think one reason I was enthusiastic about it is that I have sort of a a love hate relationship with short story collections. Uh I'm more of a novel reader. I, I do read a lot of short story collections, but they take a kind of discipline in that you're starting over and over and over again each time. Uh and and you know, it can it can feel just like too much work to re enter a book with each short story. And and this collection, one thing that really intrigued me was it is a short story collection, and as you said, it's a big book. It's 400 pages. But it also feels like a novel in some ways, in that many, maybe even most of the stories, uh, share a protagonist. And uh, it feels like an autobiography in some ways, um, in that we now know that that many of these stories and and fragments and pieces are read uh you know in sequence uh, almost tell the story of um this woman's life although you know i'm not an expert in what is directly um drawn from her own experience and and uh where she took imaginative leaps it a lot of it feels really experiential so it felt like a really different kind of book than anything i'd read last year
1: yeah christina do you have thoughts on that or
0: yeah uh Like Mark, uh, I sort of had uh, mixed feelings about short stories. One of the things that I liked about this one is that uh, the stories just pull you immediately into the characters' lives. A lot of them are written um, as scenes and fleeting moments happening in real time. So there isn't a lot of work to be done in terms of reacquainting yourself with a new character's world because uh, a lot of them are set in the similar time period and uh, in the American South and Southwest, which she renders really beautifully. And the characters are each so vivid that though I'm disappointed when the stories end, I usually find them again in a story or two later.
1: Yeah. And I think actually the interconnection of the stories is Really important because she's sort of defying a traditional chronological understanding of the way a life looks. So, you know, you, you start off and she's in a laundromat and then, um, you sort of skip back to her past in, is it Chile? Um. Mm-hmm where she is sort of this privileged white woman a white high schooler in a Catholic school, and then it's forward to her old age in L.A., and there's something so sort of incidental about um, the things that she deems important um, that she wants to tell us, and I think somehow the structure of all these sort of stories that are collaged, that end up being moments that are collaged, um it almost adds up to a thesis about like what the important parts of a life are, I think.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, one thing I loved is just what you're pointing out, the kind of circling back, and also her acknowledgement in a couple of the stories of the futility of uh, trying to be kind of perfect and clean and orderly. I mean, there's a story early in the collection in which she says you know i i could tell this story this way and you'd feel one thing but i'm going to tell it this way so that you don't feel that and there's a story late in the collection which essentially ends with her saying i still don't know how to tell this story like i I can't figure out how to put this into a a story and you know the, the the stories aren't effortful they're not kind of overwrought or exquisite. So it's not, she's not talking about a struggle with language or a struggle to find the perfect sentence. I think she seems to be talking about a a struggle to, to fit a life into stories and fragments of stories in a way that makes sense. And I found that really moving and, and human and it made the collection more accessible to me.
0: And thinking about her uh, as a writer's writer, the way she ends her stories felt really refreshing to me because she didn't feel the need to tie each of them up in a pretty bow or uh, say something that encompasses the entire story and, you know, tells you how you should think about it. A lot of them end just, you know, and then she laid in her bed and went to sleep or something like that. And that's how scenes in life end. And it it all adds up. It felt cinematic, like uh, cuts from story to story.
1: Yeah, I do like this idea of her sort of visibly wrestling with how to best convey a life and convey a story. And I think point of view... Uh, which is on 51 of my edition, really gets at this. She's sort of toggling between the first person and the third person in a way that the entire collection does. Some of the stories are told in a first person, and some of them are told in sort of a thinly veiled first person. So a third person with, you know, names like Eloise and Dolores that are kind of stand-ins for Lucia. And she starts off in this story... Imagine Chekhov's story, grief in the first person, an old man telling us his son has just died. We would feel embarrassed, uncomfortable, even bored, reacting precisely as the cabman's fares in the story did. But Chekhov's impartial voice imbues the man with dignity. We absorb the author's compassion for him and are deeply moved, if not by the son's death, by the old man talking to his horse. And so I think here she is proposing that when there's sort of an intentionality to a story, when there's a sense that things are chosen or described uh, for a reason, everyone pays more attention. And I think that sort of disturbs her. Like she wants us to pay attention just because things are worth paying attention to, human lives are paying attention to. But she's also very aware of how sort of small shifts in her technique uh, can manipulate
2: us. That's so a really interesting point. I mean, her struggle into these stories and into the act of storytelling. It, occasionally, it it jarred me because her style is so direct that, you know, it, it's it's a little bit of a jolt when she reminds you that she's a writer. The same way, it's a little bit of a jolt when, as you said, she suddenly it's not I, it's Eloise or Dolores, and suddenly you're you're aware that this person is telling us a story rather than just talking to us. But I like that struggle. I like the messiness of it. I like even, you know, I wrestled with this book while I was reading it. There were times I didn't love it. You know, I, I saw that Dwight Garner in the New York Times said, who really praised the book a lot, also said he felt it would have been twice as strong at half the length. I kind of sympathize with that because this book is, you know, easily twice the length of most single author short story collections. It's repetitive. There are some stories that are beautifully crafted and some stories that feel like beautiful fragments and some stories that feel like not beautiful fragments, fragments that were maybe kind of, you would have thought an editor would say were expendable. But what you would lose in cutting out half the book is the kind of cumulative power of this entire life sort of unfolding in this forward-moving but also recursive way. So I I don't... I mean, I think the the too-muchness of the book, I think the too-longness of the book was actually right for the book. I I don't... It certainly would have been a, a really different kind of collection if it had been half the length. Maybe... At this long length, it's truer to who she was.
0: I agree with that, Mark, and I think that the way she writes with such uh, vivid details and using details to tell the story, if she had made the book smaller, the poignancy of these silly details of everyday life I don't think would have had the chance to set in how these boring relationships and complex errands that fill up the days of her life wouldn't have seemed so meaningful, which she states plainly in point of view. It kind of made me laugh when I read that because I was just thinking as I came to that story how the smallest details that she's putting into her stories are making me feel like I'm living every boring day along with her. Yeah, and I do think
1: there's something you both mentioned, sort of the chattiness or almost like a feigned carelessness in the way she writes that, like, really... Intrigued me because on one hand, you have her saying things like, I know I romanticize everything or I exaggerate a lot and I get fiction and reality mixed up, but I don't actually ever lie. So she's sort of, she has these cast off sort of self-conscious comments. And then she will just like let loose with this incredibly crafted description. Like every time she describes the moon, I was just sort of like, well, you know, mic drop or the end, you're a writer's writer. (laughs) I mean, the way she talks about light in the sky, it's almost, I mean, she has a way of making scenes seem like metaphors. So like images that she gives us just descriptions of the landscape seem like metaphors for feelings and everything seems like really significant. And I loved actually in the introduction where um, I think it was Lydia Davis who described her style as sometimes notational, which to me got at both the sort of cast off or like breezy nature of some of her descriptions, but also the way they, they almost register as code. Like she's talking about subliminal barracuda in a cave, but it's not really about the barracuda. It's about how she feels sort of, um, at home and wondering at the world and sort of at peace in this scuba diving expedition. Um, so not really sure where I'm going with that, but I think there's just something very sort of, um, complicated about her writing style that is at once incredibly effortless and almost, uh, sketchy, but also very, very, uh, carefully done. And I wonder if any of you had a similar impression
2: completely, you know, there's, we we seem to keep coming back to like the word fragment and like a lot of these stories felt to me like you wouldn't have been surprised to find them written on like a spiral notebook paper and a ballpoint pen, like just you might come across these like stray pages in one of the places that she writes about a school or a laundromat or a hospital waiting room and think like, oh, somebody left this here. And it sort of looks like it's part of something larger. I mean, it's so, it's so personal. It's so chatty. It's so kind of unadorned, but then she'll come up with this sentence or this paragraph that is just perfect, and every word is chosen, like every word means something, every sentence means something, the way they're put together means something, it doesn't look effortful, it just looks like, oh, you, you, you're an absolutely kind of pitch-perfect writer, you know, you hear everything right. I think that's why I like the the fragments, because sometimes, could, because like I think the longest story in this collection is about 30 pages, and the shortest you wouldn't even call a story, it's, it's a half a page. You know, there's rarely a, a sentence or a word wasted, whether the story is long or short. And sometimes you really do get that she just wants to give you this snapshot, this impression that is going to um, resonate with you in some way or that resonates with her. And then sometimes she actually does want to sit down and tell you a story.
1: Today's sponsor is Audible.com, who has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible is offering our listeners a free 30-day trial membership and a free audiobook. Just go to audible.com slash slateabc and browse the over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. So we would like to recommend for you short story lovers out there, a wonderful collection by Kelly Link called Get in Trouble. Um, that is available on Audible. And if you would like to read it, which you should, please go to audiblepodcast.com slash slate ABC. That's audiblepodcast.com slash slate and get started today. I'm also really interested in the way the fragments are connected because I think that she has this sort of sense of the permeability of space and time where sort of characters seep into other characters. I'm thinking now of Temps Purdue, the story in which she is a emergency room worker, and she walks into a patient's room and suddenly just looking into his eyes, uh, reminds her of this kind of childhood platonic love affair, or almost platonic love affair. Um, way back when, and the two men uh, sort of become one man, and the two times become one time. And I think she has this like very, her mentality is that of a collageist, where she isn't really um, hemmed in by the sort of linear uh, paths that we would normally expect.
0: Yeah, uh, two of the stories that affected me most seemed to share a character, though they had different names in the stories. The first was uh, Toto Luna, Todo Año. The second was Grief. And uh, both of them include a character by the name of Cesar, who is a diver uh, who had a, a fling with the main character. One describes their relationship. The other finds the main character coming back decades later with her sister. And I thought when I was reading the second one that I had lost my place in the book and was reading the story that mm-hmm. I had already read until I realized that uh, this is uh, Lucia's way of telling a story that that life is circular in a lot of ways. And that the same metaphors that she brought with the ocean and the fish and what she learned, what the first character learned when she was diving with Cesar came back into the other character's life. And that in grief, I felt like she was grappling with being sort of the object of someone's concern. There are two sisters who meet 20 years after the last time that they've seen each other and sort of revert back to their old familiar relationship, one leading the other through uh, grief of their losing their mother and watching her... Uh, bringing her back to the same place that a character in an earlier story had found closure brought that point home
2: I think what you're talking about that that nice kind of double effect of something triggering an earlier memory or an association a kind of intuitive leap from one episode to another that's maybe not chronological and not in the same place um, one nice thing about the book is that that happens both within a single story sometimes, and as you read the book, uh, you do it from from one story to another and from one story to an earlier story. Although we should probably note that the construction of the book is not hers, that Lucia Berlin died in 2004, so the, this selection and this sequence and the effect it creates is the work of... Uh, editors uh, as well as, or an editor, Stephen Emerson, uh, as well as her own work.
1: Yeah, I'm also, I'm really glad that you brought up Toda Luna, or yeah, toda luna, todo ano, año. I, I don't speak Spanish, so. <laughs> um, but that was definitely one of my favorite stories. And I think, um, it also gets at another theme we haven't discussed yet, but that I think is really important to her work, which is class. She doesn't do a whole lot of twist endings, but there is kind of a twist, twist ending here because you have the main character who, um, is recovering from or I guess she's still working through her grief. Her husband has died, um, and she she spends a long time in Mexico City just living with these divers. Um, and she actually, she has a sexual relationship with one of them. Uh, she doesn't pay for her lodging. And then at the very end of the story, just when you think she's sort of, and I hate to use this phrase, but gone native, and that she's been completely embraced by this particular community, the man with whom she's been having relationships says, Hey, can you pay for our new boat? (laughs) Um, And she does. And it's not, it's not like a complete whiplash moment because, you know, the the lessons learned are still there. And um, it's still kind of an ambivalent final image of Caesar, who's the, or Caesar, who's the man uh, checking the tanks for air. But I did wonder if you guys made anything of like the very um, intricate class dynamics in this story.
0: I loved that ending, Um, and it was so clear that they were both using each other in ways she was using him and the peaceful environment that the diving community gave her to get over the loss of her husband and sort of, you know, find herself in an eat, pray, love sort of way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he clearly took pleasure in her company, but also ended up using their relationship to help his community survive and neither of those things made their relationship invalid or uh, made that their feelings for each other less valid but it was still clear that they were each giving and getting something from each other that wasn't completely about you know, romance and pure love.
2: One thing that interested me was that she's very aware of class, I mean, and and not sentimental about it. You know, there are there are stories in which she acknowledges her, I hate the word privilege, but, but she acknowledges her her place in the world of the story that she's writing about um, and the advantages that it confers or, or doesn't. But given that, that, one of the things that really helped me about the collection is what a strong impression you get of her as someone on the margins of almost every world she's in. I mean, she's at this convent school or, or Catholic school, but she doesn't, like she doesn't really belong there. And there are so many, there are so many stories or, or pieces of stories that are about her being kind of at the edges of someone's life. It's like from the very first story, which is set in a laundromat. I mean, there's, there are few more transient places than a laundromat. Like nobody is there permanently. And she, Makes this very small, almost gestural connection with um, with a man who's there that kind of comes to nothing. And I felt over and over again uh, we were seeing her at the edges of things, um, not not quite fitting into the world she's that she's writing, that she's in, or or standing to one side of it, or in a marginal place, an emergency room, a laundromat, uh, you know. And because a lot of the collection is about drugs and addiction issues. That's another way in which she's... Her consciousness is central to all of these stories, but you don't feel in some ways that she's... that she feels her life is the central to the world, or that it's the only life worth writing about. You know, you, you constantly get the sense of her watching uh, a, a larger world that she isn't necessarily a comfortable part of.
0: Yeah, she's very perceptive about feelings of alienation and how those feelings aren't necessarily uh, destructive, but it almost seems like she thrives there at the margins, as you said. The title story was one that I thought dealt with class issues in a really perceptive way, Um, a manual for cleaning women, which actually takes the form of a manual or, or an advice guide. And the framework makes these domestic laborers into co-conspirators in a way and uh, taking power over their own work and pride in their own work and helping each other uh, sort of enact these small subversions in the houses of the richer families that they're working in.
2: I I was just going to say, one thing I love about that story is the moment where she explains how to steal. Um, You know, she says... (laughs) like, don't take this kind of thing, take that kind of thing, put change pennies or even a dime into loose change bowls because that's what <laughs> kind of thing. And, I mean, I loved that she said even a dime because the idea that a dime is a big enough quantity of money to for you to have to think for an extra second before you invest it in this game, it just, like, packs so much information in about how the women in these stories count their pennies, what money means to them. Um, and the story is all located either in houses that aren't theirs or on buses, you know, which uh, another kind of transitional, temporary, contingent location. Uh, I, I just thought that it really was um, my, my favorite of the stories in the collection. You totally understand why they... Um, why they named the collection A Manual for Cleaning Women, because if you read that story, you you really get her kind of everything that's great about her, her observational detail, her her first-person voice, her innovative structure, her seeming ability to see everything and to process it really clearly. It's all in there. It's just an extraordinary story.
1: I agree. And I actually, I have a theory to run by you guys. Um, <laughs> because I think you're absolutely right that, that she is really good at evoking this life lived on the margins. But I also get the sense that her stories themselves feel kind of marginal or tangential to their true subjects. So like, she is talking about what might read as superficial details, um, you know, the contents of, of a bowl of change or something, and the story's real subjects are things like addiction and mourning and poverty and want, and I mean, that's why when I got to that beautiful description of, um, of the school of Barracuda in, in the diving story, when, when it says endless subliminal hundreds of them, and I thought, oh my gosh, subliminal Barracuda, that's exactly what is happening in, like, <laughs> in these stories. There's sort of this placid, beautiful surface, and then underneath there are these subliminal Barracuda, that's the grief and the addiction. Um, and I just think that, Marginality is such an important part of this work, not only because she is adopting the perspective of an observer on the edges, but because the stories themselves seem to be sort of um, at an angle from the true uh, emotions or, or topics that they want us to be thinking about.
0: I wonder if that theory holds any water for you guys. I support that theory. One of the other stories that comes to mind that I think supports that theory is uh, grief, which I previously mentioned, which tells the story of grieving almost completely through other people's observations of somebody going through the grieving process and how the watching somebody go through pain, you can interpret their feelings completely differently from what their actual lived experience is like. And, you know, back to her being a writer's writer, one of the biggest rules that writers are always told is show, don't tell. And I, this is the book that people should read to learn how that's done.
2: <laughs> I think that's true. And I, I, I completely agree with you, uh, uh, Katie, about the, the marginal element of the, the stories themselves. You You know, short stories are so much about what you choose to tell versus what you allow the reader to fill in. You know, I think a great short story often sets your imagination afire about the the larger world uh, around the story, and she's she's so good at implication. She's so good at like suggesting something that's just in the periphery of your vision, but then not going there. And you know, you you just mentioned um, show don't tell, which I think is absolutely. A dead on description of, of the practice she follows, but the the writer's rule that I thought of when I was reading this collection is actually a playwright's rule, which is never come into a scene before you have to and always leave at the first possible moment um, <laughs> and and she felt like she observed that that rule too like there's you never in any of these stories feel in the first two or three pages that she's warming up or cracking her knuckles or mm-hmm. kind of, you know, preparing to start the story, usually you are dropped in right to the middle, sort of. And you're like, wait, who, you know, who, who are you? Why are you just leaving a place? We weren't even in this place. You know, where did you come from? Why are you in a bad mood? What? what? You're on drugs? Like, it, you're, you have to get your bearings really fast. Although sometimes she will give you this really not a twist ending, but a kind of brutal ending. Like, you know, two days later she was dead or I never saw him <laughs> again. or You know, I mean, she, she is definitely fond of those. Most of the time it's like, Oh, well, I guess we're done. Like we're done and you're not going to tell me anymore. And I have to extrapolate what I can from, from the, the snapshot or the vignette or the image you've just left me with. Um, So the only stories I I didn't fully invest in, I think were the ones that ended with this sort of brutal, sudden, like, piece of information, you know, like usually a bad piece of information. This person got fired, this person went to jail, this person died. Uh, Sometimes that almost felt artificial to me compared to the way she worked, but I don't don't think it was artificial. I think, you know, uh, I think... She she's making a point a lot about how people can just drop out of your life instantly or drop out of life instantly. She's very unsentimental about that. But most of the stories, as I said, aren't like that.
0: Speaking of death, one of the pieces that actually made me sit back and just think about death for a few minutes and, and stop reading the book was um, the story, Emergency Room Notebook, 1977. I mean, one of my favorite lines from, that book was in this story about the, the sort of calluses that can develop when somebody is in a caring profession, like a, the medical profession, um, and seeing people coming into the emergency room when they don't have an emergency. And then she says, and this is, might be one of her heaviest handed lines in the whole book, uh, fear, poverty, alcoholism, loneliness are terminal illnesses, emergencies, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, for all of the silly medical dramas that I've watched on TV, this one story sort of did more to make me contemplate the morbidity, the sort of banal morbidity of an emergency room and of poverty and loneliness and depression.
1: Yeah, the Undertaker humor here is spot on. Like, I love the sentence, um, or the, the passage, exam week at Cal. Many suicides, some succeeding, mostly Oriental, which, ooh, uh, <laughs> dumbest suicide of the week was Otis, and then she launches into Otis's story. But, like, what a exam week, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um,
2: thought that was great. And then this great, in that story as well, she is dead now. Not sure when it happened on one of my days off. She always seemed dead Mm -hmm. anyway, but nicely so, like an illustration or advertisement. I mean, there's such, like, you know, you have this completely arresting observation. But then also, like, on one of my days off, which is, it felt like one of the truest things ever about a hospital or an ER, that, like, people die off your shift, you know? Mm
0: -hmm.
2: I mean, she's not an unkind writer at all, but she's a really unsentimental one and and that story showcases it so well.
1: I mean, do you get the sense of her um, as a lonely person from these stories or do you think that she sort of gets enough human sustenance off these brief points of connection with people?
2: I kept thinking about the fact that she was a teacher, a really well-loved writing teacher, which seems to be the thing that isn't really in the stories and Probably it's not fair to try to extrapolate anything about this, this real person. I mean, the story seemed to invite you to consider them autobiographically, but but I wondered about the what you were asking about, the, the loneliness, because the only thing I'd read about her was how connected she was to other writers and, and how other writers felt connected to her. Um, and so I wondered how that fit into this sense you get sometimes from reading the stories that that she she's always fundamentally alone. Um, that For all the great number of stories in the book, very, very few of them are about being in a kind of intense, permanent relationship with anyone.
0: And it seems like a lot of the dearest relationships she describes are sometimes based on misunderstandings. It happened in Stars and Saints uh, and in Friends, where some of the sort of recurring human connections that she develops, uh, no one's sure who needs whom, and she or the main character finds out later that somebody was just giving her the time of day because they felt she needed it. And in Friends, where she's develops a relationship with two elderly people, and she feels that They need her, but they feel that she needs them. Uh, It's kind of sweet in that way. You can see them both gaining purpose from the idea that they're needed. Uh, And even though they might think, oh, it's a bother to have this weekly visit or whatever, that uh, it sustains both of them. That felt autobiographical to me. And the one uh, point of view where she actually does switch back and forth between first and third person seemed to me to be about loneliness itself and that to me would be the strongest piece of evidence that she really did that she spent a lot of her time or feelings on being alone.
1: I'm actually surprised that these stories are not more joyless than than they are, just because the, you know, she's talking about a sort of working class, grueling, um, non-glamorous existence. She's talking about raising four children without her husband and sort of living in the wake of these earlier untimely deaths. Um, I think actually the Dwight, garner review said all the trajectories in this book are downward um and yet they are not sort of tragic and relentlessly painful stories they're very affirming stories in a way and i wonder if if you guys have any idea about how she accomplishes this or if you even agree with that
2: i do agree with it um you know she a lot of the stories make you think, God, if that were me, I'd be so miserable. But very few of them, they're not, you know, my life is crap stories. And I think part of it is that she, for all of the fragmentariness and, and transience and temporariness of what she's often writing about, she finds a lot of grace and meaning in, in brief encounters, you know, like she she can... She, she never seems to lose her interest in the world even when she's struggling so so these old people you know that she visits or or someone she just happens to meet or someone she only knows for a short time that can be as nourishing or sustaining to her it seems as what we would think of as a more substantial or meaningful human interaction can i think i think one thing she tells you is that it's not about, you know, the depth to which you know someone or the length of time you know them, that that it's it's about, you know, trying to see and understand people's humanity, sometimes on the fly.
0: One of her stories, uh, Fool to Cry, when you said uh, that she, that you know, despite all these downward trajectories, so to speak, she ends up, you know, feeling not joyless. I thought of this story because it's actually about an old acquaintance that the main character, Carlotta, meets. And he's sort of flaunting his accomplishments. She's going through some hardships. Um, And he says, oh, you know, aren't things so hard for you? Uh, You must be so worried about your retirement, yada, yada, yada. However, will you pick up the pieces of your life? And she says... I don't want any of those old pieces. I just go along trying not to do any damage. And he asks, what do you feel you've accomplished in your life? And she says, hmm, I haven't had a drink in three years. <laughs> you know, uh, and at the end of the story, she goes back and, you know, I- instead of making it a, a funny story as it could have been to her family waiting at home, she cries and uh, they comfort her. But I can see her having that sort of attitude about life too. You know, that no matter how, dismal things are there's a joke to be made about it or there's always a way it could be worse
2: i wonder what she would have made of seeing all of these stories assembled this way because if she felt that kind of I, i i just moved through life trying not to hurt anybody I wonder if she'd be startled in some ways to see like how how much she acquired, how much she accumulated in in the way of observation uh, through that life. It's not like, it's not baggage exactly, but it's a lot left an impression on her. She left an impression on a lot. I I wonder how she'd feel about that.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. Just to wrap up, Christina, would you recommend this book to our readers and listeners?
0: Yes. Please read this book. And Mark, what about you?
2: Yeah, I definitely recommend it. You know, pick it up, put it down, get sick of it, go back to it. I think that's a fine relationship to have with any short story book and, and this one, the only thing I'd say about it is don't skip around. Go go from beginning to end.
1: Absolutely. Um, I agree. I actually have to confess that the first few stories it, it took me a while to or not a while, but it took me some time to get into them and then I sort of like tipped over a precipice and was like all in, could not put it down. <laughs> there was sort of a murderer's row of stories uh near the near the beginning that I think like it was Stars and Saints and then a manual for cleaning mm-hmm. women and then El Tim and I was like, Okay, all right, I'm in. Um but Yes, I would say please do read this book. It's wonderful. And then come to our Facebook page and tell us what you thought. All right. Thanks so much, you guys. This was really fun. Thanks. Thank you. The homepage for the Slate book review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slate ABC. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Book Club in the iTunes store, and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Slate's Audiobook Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Our producer is Jason DeLeon. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Christina Catarucci and Mark Harris, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening.